Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort. I'm a songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. We've got a conversation to bring you in this episode, uh, and we're going to get straight into it because I want to share the whole thing. It's just over an hour long. Um, It's with Emma Behrman, who's the founder of Playful Anywhere which is a social enterprise based in Leeds here in the UK. And their mission is to catalyze creativity, inventiveness and playfulness at home, at work and on our travels. And they run a range of events and programs and activities, festivals, those kinds of things with a, uh, a desire to encourage a kind of maker culture in a world of consumption. And so I thought Emma sort of ticks all the boxes, would be a perfect guest Uh, during our month of adventure um, to talk about play and creativity and playful mischief um, and gentle rebellion and learning how to, as she writes on the website, fully embrace the joy in the ordinary everyday moments and see the potential in places and people. So this kind of really speaks to the idea of slowing down and, and, and kind of making space for magic to happen, essentially. And so we chat about how play and creativity um, kind of emerge out, burst out of boredom and constraints and limits. Um, talked about why we'd love to have all the time and money in the world, but think maybe it, we'd end up still sabotaging that because it would not be good for our creative inspiration. Um, talk about the importance of uh, maintaining childlike wonder and daftness uh, and why play is a great antidote to antagonistic approaches to driving change, uh, engaging in political discourse and um, approaching cultural divisions and that kind of thing. And then the joy of, um, you know, the the joy that comes from saying, I don't know, and the joy that emerges um, the other side of awkward silences or through awkward silences. So, yeah, here we go. I'm going to just launch straight into it. So I hope you enjoy this. Emma Behrman, it is really great to be speaking with you. How are you doing? I'm good, Andy. How are you? I'm very well. Yes, I'm very well. Um, I'm really excited to get you on to the Gentle Rebel podcast to talk about play. It's our month of adventure um, (laughs) this month. And I just thought, yeah, what better thing to talk about than play? And um, so uh, we've kind of just saying that we've not met in person or online before like on yeah on zoom or anything like that um but we i feel like i know you rescue in the past haven't you i've I've just gone andy help so i think and you just went okay sure i'll do that yeah so sort of editing things and and i've got a real sense of like well the underpinning of what you do so you run or founded playful anywhere um which i'd love to hear your side of like, yeah, how you describe it. What what do you do? What is that about? And yeah, how much of your time does that take up at the moment? Um, well, I mean, it's the mainstay of my life, I suppose. <laughs> it's playful anywhere. I do do consultancy work alongside playful anywhere, but on the on the whole, it is the obsession really. And um, I think, I mean, it, without going into too much background, I suppose. It, always as a child as an only child in fact 
growing up in the 70s, um, so, so maybe your listeners might be a bit younger, but for, for a generation of people, we were used to being booted at the house pretty early in the day. <laughs> and uh, you had to make your own adventure, honestly. You had to make your own fun. We didn't have, I didn't have a TV, a colour TV, I don't think, until I was about 10 or 11. And certainly didn't have mobile phones. And as an only child on a council estate, really, the um, you had to be quite resourceful, I think, in order to make yeah make your own fun so I got to know the neighbours really well and do lots of odd jobs and hobbies and friends you'd, you'd go off in gangs or you'd be on your own I had an imaginary horse called Red Sox uh, so yeah I, I, I look at today's realities and feel they're so far removed from what it was like growing up in those decades hmm. um, and a lot of my work is informed by that really in terms yeah. of how we how we sort of um, see the potential in the smallest possible kind of seemingly nothingness, in fact. How, how do you dig deep to find something? And especially if you're used to sort of dealing with boredom, how does creativity spring from boredom? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I love that sort of foundation. I was thinking about um, like definitions of play the other day and I was, I was thinking it's like it's like time plus limitations and the the kind of when you've you've got that time in front of you but you've also got maybe limited resources or uh, you don't have all of the things that can satisfy your boredom or take you out of that boredom that we have today um it just kind of yeah resonates with what you you were just sort of describing there that yeah that image of kicked so out of the house and boards. Yeah. i mean I don't, I don't know for kids as well this I don't know, because we do have um, so many things, I think, at our fingertips now to alleviate boredom, to be entertained or to, you know, to have activities. But um, I do agree with you on the whole, like, constraints side of things. So, like, having a constraint gives you something to kick off from, doesn't it? Mm. So it's where the fun is, I think, actually, which is, like, you've got these materials or you've got this much time or you've got this place um, so lack of resource quite often is more stimulating yeah. than too much resource. Yeah, and it, it's a kind of weird problem solving in a way because it's like nobody's asked you to set these problems for yourself. They always go looking for them. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it it can be overwhelming, can't it? Like I guess it's the paradox of choice and the whole thing of like when you've got too many options, it's like, well, where, what do I choose? But yes. actually, if those if those yeah limitations are, are there it's like okay what do i do with this um or what ca- yeah, could i do with this that's so right because the whole paradox of choice thing i can become overwhelmed by that really kind of like if we're going to the supermarket or even as a kid actually when i look back on it i could go into a shop and the you know the amounts of different things i could possibly have could paralyze me and i would end up coming back out of it with nothing mm. um and you know unless i had a very, very specific thing i must get you know whatever it was at the time paces something that doesn't exist now probably um but but i think yeah that sense of like i can swim around for ages if i've got too much time and too many choices i can't actually make a decision yeah whereas if you say to me uh you've got to do this thing by next week you've got 10 pence (laughs) i've got to make something happen i can really deal with that kind of brief more than i can of like you've got loads of time 
you know, it rarely happens that way anyway, to be honest. The uh, here's loads of money and loads of time. Those two things <laughs> never happen. <laughs> That's true. It's difficult to sort of, yeah, compare, <laughs> compare the two. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know how I'd cope with it, though, because I probably could come up with a billion different ways to spend the money and the time and then it'd mm-hmm. still leave it to the very last minute yeah, yeah. to actually do something. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of thinking about those differences between that time when you grew up, grew up in the seventies and, you know, not having a TV till you were 10 and what kids have now and the work that you're doing in with playful anywhere, like what, how, what's the, how are you bridging that gap? Like, what is it that you're trying to do with that? Um, so I suppose there was some very deeply personal stuff um about the why of it but also and that's all links to i love seeing people have good fun Mm -hmm. so like my absolute pleasure in life really is to create a scenario which i can then almost stand on the sidelines of having the uh joy of seeing other people enjoying themselves so you know you could say that's classic people pleasing but at the same time there is something so intoxicating i think around seeing people do a thing make a thing feel comfortable um make new friendships um that I don't need to be in the center of once I've got the sort of environment right uh so there's there's definitely a sort of sense of wanting to create spaces for other people the bit around my own sort of childhood I suppose is knowing that I can conjure things up and so I also quite I'm quite mischievous as well it, not very mischievous quite mischievous <laughs> so so I like to see and I think this goes back to a lot of children will like to see how they test their boundaries so I think as an adult we we stop being well you can be called an activist or a troublemaker or there's a whole load of negative um associations with asking questions and being curious as an adult mm-hmm. you're not always welcomed so sometimes you have to work out how you best want to do that which is how's your inquiry gonna take shape so Mm. for me like a shipping container which we've uh which we can go into more detail of obviously but something that punctuates the every day is a question mark in itself what is this shipping container what's it doing here um is a nice way of breaking the inertia somewhere Mm -hmm. um and getting other people to be curious Uh, and playfulness i think is a sort of more gentle sometimes way of prodding bears rather than being antagonistic and throwing stones and sticks at people i think sometimes you can still achieve your aims by doing it in a more playful friendly cheeky way Mm. than going head into confrontation that makes sense i don't know if i'm answering your questions by the way Uh, do bring me back into focus if i do kind of take I do do this thing I'll take the beginning of a question and then go very sideways with it oh I'm the same yeah <laughs> very much the same <laughs> yeah. you didn't the question there I can be brought back but I guess the thing of like remembering what it was like to be a child and still feeling quite childlike actually I really can't believe I'm gonna be 50 in a couple of weeks I'm like how the hell is that okay well, it's just not true actually um so I feel like it's really important for adults not to forget their childlike wonder and curiosity mm. and daftness and sense of you know being able to access that um it's not like it's uh what's the word it's not disingenuous but actually being able to say 
I don't know. I want to go exploring. I want to find things out. I want to experiment. I want to test things rather than thinking you know all the answers. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's really important to do that and to model it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so much in there. The I love the the mischievous scale. It's uh, something to <laughs> develop. You see you, Andy. How would you describe yourself in terms of mischievousness? I think I, it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to this idea of like the gentle rebel and um, and play in itself. I think like what you just said about it being, I always see it along with humour and laughter and things as like a a shock absorber. It's this thing that's able to absorb the seriousness or to allow yes. give space for you to sort of prod and probe at the things that actually these are really important questions these are serious things we need to look at but if you try grabbing them too tightly or holding them in and like look at this you've got to like yeah it, in a confrontational way it just it leads to friction and just yeah conflict that then lead like doesn't go anywhere positive so yeah, I, think, I think yeah we that's surprised when we do that as well i'm not interested in binaries particularly like I'm quite interested in that shade of grey area of like, it's okay, we don't know the answers yet and we don't yeah. have to take a position and we don't have to be in camps. And actually it's probably more in common than we realise. And I mm -hmm. think that's the area that I'm really interested in exploring is rather than go, oh, it's all determined. It, nothing is really determined. It's mm -hmm. always in flux. So how how do we continue to, and this sounds so deep, doesn't it? But like, create spaces where whether online or offline in our conversation and the ways that we are in order for people not to feel that they have to have worked it all out or to claim certitude when they don't have it yeah um because that we then take a position and then we find it really hard to come back from that position i think absolutely yeah yeah and that's the the beauty in these ideas of play and adventure is like it's what happens in the space between well i often think of it an adventure is what happens in the space between here and there or what happens in the space between here and here because you circle back round and there's stuff that goes on you know i'll end up back here where i am but there's going to be all these things that happen on the way um and that is all uncertain and what makes the adventure magical is the fact that you don't know how it's going to pan out yeah. you, and and that's what creativity and and all of this stuff is is all about it's like embracing the uncertainty absolutely um, yeah. and I know I work with so many people who want answers yeah <laughs> society wants answers you know like wants a solution to so many things and uh, I suppose to some degree um the open-endedness and the vagueness of you know this ambiguity is is really um it's threatening in its own way sometimes actually mm. because people just want to move on to the next thing they've got like a task list or a transactional thing they've got to do and it actually just saying oh do you know what let's just swim around in this kind of space a bit longer yeah. uh, before we make any decisions is really not everybody's preference so that mm. in itself can add friction weirdly because we're so used to determining a solution without really having much time to hang out and work it out mm. or to I mean, I, I sort of read some academic stuff on all this, but I tend to try not to use the words, but it's kind of how do you have more embodied experiences before you kind of make categoric kind of decisions on things? Right. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like in a, but I I think I quite like that, like I don't know yet space, but I yeah. don't think anybody else does. No, I, it's, 
it's a yeah i think i know lots of people that do and lots of people that don't <laughs> it's very uncomfortable for uh it's like i need an answer i need to know where i'm going and and it's and actually in my experience so often it's i i just have to swim around in that slow down pause swim around in the uncertainty um and be comfortable with that and know that actually a better answer or a better kind of way forward is going to make itself known but you've got to yeah. be patient and you've got to yeah trust that process to some degree and and probe and play and it takes me on to something i wanted to talk about which is like creating conditions for um for play and for these sorts mm-hmm. of things and that you know your description of setting these things in motion and then standing on the side and just just observing it all coming together is like a really beautiful picture of that um and you you kind of have these you you mentioned the container uh the ship shipping containers and so you've got you've got sort of a a part of what you do is to do with spaces and then you've got community and um like well i guess pop-up spaces i think you talk is it space activation pop-up spaces and and the community it gets called that you know like by people who book us you know there are the types of ways in which we'll the functional things that we do will be named as pop up mm-hmm. or space activation space activation or holiday entertainment or um yeah vite you know uh, vibrancy destination you know yeah. there's place making there's all these words that kind of we're, we're kind of happy to play with i suppose because ultimately they pay our wages um, <laughs> yeah but, but they're kind of uh yeah so just for listeners who are wondering this does sound very very abstract at the moment doesn't it so we've got 20 um foot shipping containers called play boxes which have um i don't know how many we've got now i keep being asked this question at the moment so not all of them are in use but they do rove around and they can be booked and they started uh, well one started its life back in 20 i want to say 2015 2016 We've done a big major citywide festival called March of the Robots, which was about 107 different types of events and workshops and film screenings um, with 7,000 plus robots made, anything from cardboard to code, all ages, about 67 locations. I can trot that off. But in the, um, and this idea behind that really was that people are just like exploring a maker culture you know, so the idea of we live in very consumerist times and we're not always adept at um, having a go at things. And most people, we could have come up with anything in a way, but we thought robots would be a good thing in which to hang the whole project on because it was looking at participation and past, present and the future. And we also recognised that male um participation at arts and creative events was lower mm. and so we also thought well actually robots are probably known by most ages generations genders ethnicities um and so yeah so that's what we did and as a result of this massive project in the last quarter we ended up acquiring a 20-foot shipping container which was called the roving robot laboratory and i had a um artist in residence this guy called Stephen Reed who does lots of Minecraft and 3D printing and um, he was like a time traveling steampunk kind of character who then we poured this box around schools and 
churchyards and wasteland and bits of parks and had a wonderful time and got all those different communities kind of thinking about uh, stories that this robot and this inventor were going to put it into this assemblage of a massive, massive robot, which then happened at light night that year um, on Victoria Garden. So a big robot was made, but its kind of brain was made up and bits of it were made up the stories that it collected hmm. along the way and so at the end of this massive project i was left with a shipping container no energy no money <laughs> no where to put it so um as luck would have it where i lived in armley which is like an inner city um, ward just outside the center of leeds um there's a common land with volunteers and i live with i live very close to that space so I said, can I just stick it on the common land? Uh, it's a lovely little park, which is at the end of my road, called Charlie Cake Park. And um, in theory, you're not supposed to spend more than 28 days with a kind of temporary structure. So we just kind of kept, this is where mischief comes in, I suppose. <laughs> just thought, well, we'll move if someone tells us to, because what's yeah. the worst that can happen, really? Um, and so... In fact, it almost goes back to that sort of sense of being bored or having no resource. If I'd had more resource, I'd have probably tried to be more like um, directional with it. But it was pretty much an empty box and I was an empty husk. So the kids <laughs> would kind of go, what? what's happening today? The you know, They didn't call it a play box initially. I think they used to call it the cabinet for some reason, the cabinet. Right. So you get people knocking on the door wanting to have you come and open it. And really what I learned, I think even at that point, was it wasn't really what was in the box. It was the excuse to be together in a space. Mm. And it was legitimizing a kind of reason to use that park because there wasn't any, well, like, yeah. It's, so it's at that point, despite all the really hard work that the volunteers did, it was always full of dog poo and glass and litter. Mm. And people would um, walk there, really quite scary dogs there, big jaws that would come hurtling up towards you. Uh, speed so it wasn't the kind of place that you always felt very comfortable to take a toddler to for a start so um it over the period of being there which was about six months it became the play box so it kind of was mm. what the community wanted and we filled it with things that people donated and um yeah it just it was it was a really rooted community project really and blessing of it was that I was sort of this weird kind of I'm both a neighbor I'm someone who lives here I'm not someone who is kind of acting in a professional capacity and that did allow me to just sort of try my best to just be like everybody else so it's more peer-to-peer -peer than it was mm. I'm there as a sort of practitioner if that makes sense yeah I mean I still knew at the end of the day that I had the insurance and all the liability and responsibility and safeguarding issues and all of those other things that kind of go alongside running a, a social enterprise but being able to then be my facilitation style if you want to call it that was letting everybody else just crack on with what they wanted to do mm. that's Once really ago. that's a really powerful yeah like story uh, because it's it's that embodiment of what you were saying earlier like almost because <laughs> because of that exhaustion that you felt after the project and you've got this container i don't know what to do with it like it just found an organic way of being utilized in that sense and it was a it became a an expression of the community by the sound of it yeah 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 and i think 
um sometimes i think you know we can be really performative can't we we're sort of conditioned mm. <laughs> as adults i think to i don't know what age it starts actually but at some point we start thinking this is what a person who's hard at work looks like yeah <laughs> so, so i i think i my hard at work is in my head a lot of the time it's just kind of it's judging um just how much i need to do in order to like affect the change that might so if i don't have to do anything i will be happily sat there on a camping chair just right. letting things unfold um or i'll gently get up and have a wander around and just check but it won't or i'll go and get drinks for people or something or I'll, it's little like prodding things is, is that a natural thing or have you sort of learned because i'm we can be get always get in our own way with that sort of thing like it takes a it's a huge skill to actually be able to step back and say oh no i'm not gonna keep meddling because we want to look productive you know because society tells us this is what someone who's hard at work looks like or Hmm. um making a difference or adding value all these things that we grow up being really conditioned to think we need to look important (laughs) Yeah, it's actually really kind of to go against the grain of that is to go why why do we do all of that really I want to be comfortable and I want to feel like on a level with people I don't want to be the leader in my own kind of like I don't I don't want to have to sort of create a hierarchical everybody looks to me for what's happening next mm-hmm. I kind of want to make sure that we're safe but at the same time, I want people to take their own initiative. And I don't want to create a dependency on me, particularly. Yeah. Um, and it could be partly because I'm pretty lazy, right? So you could say it's a kind of like inbuilt thing to go, well, why do more than I should need to? Um, but also, that's a bit unkind to myself, really. I think there is a lot yeah. going on in my head about what is the absolute necessary thing to do right now. Um, and can I get away with doing even less? Hmm. really because what emerges when you do less if you're you know i think it's called walking backwards there is there is all this stuff out there about this by the way so the idea of leadership is a thing of walking backwards so you're not the one in front yeah. you're basically allowing everybody else to go in front of you and you're gently kind of walking backwards from it so people don't even notice when you're not there mm-hmm. is the ideal kind of leadership yeah so they're kind of yeah i've always thought like as a leader, if you're, you know, there's a, a moment where you may be needing to really take charge and give some vision and direction and get everyone sort of all facing in the same direction and moving in the same direction. And then ultimately your, your job is to make yourself obsolete ultimately um, yeah. and to get to leave it so that it, it works on its own. And, I know, and that's yeah. the hardest trick in the world, I think, because we do create these things where you know by force of nature or personality you create a sense of like you have to be there you know have to mm. be center of everything people are expecting you to do a thing to take some charge to be responsible all those things and to and especially as i'm not really interested in organizational leadership either i don't want to create an organization i like to work in a really sort of um collaborative work with people who want to do a thing and yeah. enhance what it is that they do already if you know just by getting them together and connecting people together so I don't, I don't want to ever sort of 
grow an organization in order to do that so I'm quite resistant to that as well so mm-hmm. my kind of leadership really is I think um I'm at my strongest when there's nothing happening somewhere and I can see potential in a thing or a place and I poke it like catalyze it by going what happens if we prod this thing what might happen and then either people will go you're on your own there missus nobody's interested in that that thing that place or people start to kind of go oh what's going on over here then yeah that's where it's really interesting for me that part of the process I don't want to be there three or four years later with an organizational structure Mm -hmm. with people to manage that would be my idea of hell yeah thinking how did this evolve around (laughs) me what have I done yeah I have to think about all that that would be no fun I'd be locked into a box at that point of like uh administrative nightmares Mm -hmm. yeah so what are some of the some of your most like the the highlights or the standout things that you've kind of set in motion in that sense um that's such a good question I mean everything's interesting (laughs) so hard um when I'm at the very early stages of a new site, uh, which we're waiting, where we tried to get a site for all the play boxes. So we've got some which have pure storage, some which rove, and we've got some new ones being made. And um, that has taken since that time in Charlie Cape Park to materialise. So it's been a lot yeah. of kissing of frogs, of... Um, yeah, cul-de-sacs really. And then in about a year ago, came across some, uh, well, I actually got very frustrated because we were being turfed off some land with a 40-foot container at short notice. Mm-hmm. And I appealed to the chief executive of the city council to help me, uh, just by retweeting a kind of call out really. And as luck would have it, um, the director of a new housing development said, oh, I'll, I'll help. Um, partly because I think he gets on with the chief executive of the city council. Mm-hmm. And so little did he know at that point, though, what kind of big schemes I had. <laughs> so so like he thought he was helping me out on his 14-acre site yeah. by plonking a shipping container down. And I think he ruse the day, quite honestly, that once he got <laughs> to know me, like, box play, let me tell you about my world philosophy of how the world should be and how much you know we're going to do this for shipping containers. So um, it's very, that's personally very exciting because we're at the stage of a site that's in complete. It's been demolished. Um, you know, it's all the groundworks that are happening at the moment, and the um, we've got a sixty by foot, sixty foot compound in the middle of an absolute proper building site. Mm. So like all the diggers and cranes and sewage pipes um it's cold we don't have any power so that is a definite constraint that is holding us back from some elements of what we need to do so that that is quite a it's not involving a community really per se at the moment because it's so early days Mm. it will do and we'll be working with developing community around that space and understanding what communities already exist so we'll be part of that site as it as it grows and embeds um principles right from the outset of like what it takes to um knit and weave a community in a space which may not feel like that at the moment okay so that's super exciting um but it's super exciting when i say it but actually some of the reality is like oh we have no power 
we have no water, we have no toilets. You know, it's, it's kind of things which are actually sort of like take up the majority of your headspace. It's trying to, you know, how much power do we actually need? Mm. Uh, can I find another way to find go to the toilet? You know, it's just all that <laughs> problem solving. Doesn't have time to with it. The behind the scenes of adventure. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Worrying about toilets. Just the very basic stuff, basically. Can I make a guest a cup of coffee? Can I even have a guest down there? You know, mm. so uh, that is a big adventure, I suppose. And could be daunting if, if when you think about it, but somehow it's not because they're just letting us do what we want to on our compound in a way. So, mm. how do you, in your mind, how do you sort of? Because as you say, it could be daunting. It could be it sounds like it could be absolutely overwhelming if you think about the the whole picture um, <laughs> at any one time, especially at the beginning. Like, how do you manage that in your mind in terms of smaller chunks? Oh, so, yeah. I find it easier to talk about the bigger picture than I do the chunks, to be honest. And then people right, are okay. how, how are we going to chunk this down? I'm like, oh, look, I know what the strap line is. It's uh, if we can imagine it together, we can make it, you know, and it's like, there's the clarion call there. And I, I do think, you know, having a vision is really key to all of this. So it is what what are your principles and values. So that that does help with the chunking down, I think, mm-hmm. of the smaller bits of this which is if we have principles about renewable kinetic energy of being socially responsible of being um as resourceful as possible modeling resourcefulness being open with that you know it sort of helps you with the smaller decisions i think um so you don't race at things like for example um a good example of this i suppose is we need to insulate our new shipping containers that we're having refurbished and I've gone round and round the houses, literally on a rumination loop. It's unbelievable the amount of research we put into going, what is the best insulation material? Right. <laughs> um, you know, my dream was that I would find something that was kind of new and emergent and socially, like a social enterprise locally, that was doing something interesting with wasted wool, waste wool, for example, that wasn't too mm-hmm. stinky. And that we could, you know, tell that as part of our story of production but it doesn't work out that way sometimes so sometimes you end up like you said back at the same point as you started which was oh it is that then that is the best material mm. having gone and explored lots of other things it's disappointed to go oh there's nothing that innovative yeah really um yeah. but it is a principle you know so it slows you down and you are in that space of unknowing but then you kind of wish that it doesn't mean to say that the next things are emerging in that market of like other ways to do things. It's just very expensive, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's those little decisions as well, which yeah. don't feel very playful. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Like you need to That's have a... containers or ones that don't cook people in summer. Yeah, important things to think about there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's really helped, helpful sort of thinking, okay, what are those uh, those founding values and the things, I guess, the filters that everything goes through um, as you look at, and uh, yeah, hearing you talk about holding the big picture is actually the thing that sustains you in the, in the chunks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even it justifies why things seem slower as well sometimes yeah. because it's um if the answers were all there you, you know it would be quite quick i suppose 
but we want to explore things that aren't yet known or also mm. like if, if we're coming against like things are going well why is insulation like this you know is there a circular method that actually is emerging that we can't afford right now so in some ways it's pointing to the opportunity that is still to be explored and worked on mm. so you don't just go oh well, that solved that problem forevermore you just you've highlighted a kind of interesting area yeah the, the thing i would have done in the hist historically in the past though which i just don't have time for anymore is to have gone why don't we set up an insulation materials company <laughs> or just like try to solve that problem get yeah. my own feet to go down the tracks of it if that makes sense yeah i'm a bit like uh, i can't keep doing that can't keep going off on these tangent parallel processes but I won't let that one lie. It still will keep going around in my kind of mm. like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Yeah. I mean, come across things like cork insulation spray, which is really interesting. Um, locally, Yorkshire-based company, but possibly, you know, we've got this question around aesthetics versus functionality. Right. So there's, that's going to be part of all of this as well. It's like we live in an extremely Instagrammable world. And whilst my aesthetic i'm more than happy to be completely you know the reality of messy life looks like this mm -hmm. that isn't what commissioners will spend money on they they like the assurance of something slick and instagrammable yeah and that will dictate sadly some of the choices you have to make including insulation all of <clears throat> it really yeah you know it's i mean an, the Venn diagram of something which is like both innovative, interesting, circular and aesthetically pleasing and will continue to bring in the money which allows you to do the R&D is, um, you know, that is the sweet spot, obviously. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you've got to compromise on one bit of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I wanted to to ask you about, like, is the is the fact that well, I love I love the juxtaposition of like with shipping containers and play and like these quite industrial. I mean, I'm a big fan of industrial landscapes because I just find them very, I don't know, they just do something to my soul. Um, and yeah, just placing that, the industrial, like you talk about the building site stuff in the middle of the building site. Um, and then putting that with play, putting that with, um, you know, having fun and that sort of organic sense of um, what, like humanness, I think, at the heart of it, the messiness, the chaos. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm really attracted to that. Um, and it kind of flies in the face of that Instagrammable aesthetic thing that you're talking about. Um, I yeah. Mean, how like, It's down to me. I would, it's not like I don't like Instagram. I'm really as, as much as anybody else affected by things that look beautiful. Um, but I'm also like, <laughs> So, for example, this is a really good example. I came across an amazing rubber flooring company. I don't need rubber flooring, but I was like on Instagram, beautiful, like, oh my God, that's the life I aspire to. Mm -hmm. uh, rang them up, and it was, it was for a project. In fact, we'll I'll talk about this if we've got time about the Cambridge project we're involved in. But I was looking for two meter circular things that we could fling outside to make these like things to play with on outdoor spaces. And I went to this company and they were like, straight away, they were like, no, this isn't going to work as an outdoor product. Stop you right there. You know, really honest. Didn't try yeah. and sell me some 
but their website is just gorgeous and I was like oh but I really like what you do and their 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 um factory is also solar and wind powered so I was really desperate to find a way actually to kind of work with them because I just right. love everything they do then she got into how much cleaning you know you have to do in order to maintain the pristine kind of like lifestyle that you see in the Instagram pictures <laughs> and I was like see nobody really says that do they <laughs> I, I I think there's probably a PhD in it, not for me, but someone, if it hasn't already happened, on the kind of absolute tyranny of a world of Instagrammable kind of criteria that we make decisions based on. I just think it's so unrealistic um, mm, to try and aspire to it. Mm. But it is how time short and time and money poor people like within commissioning processes quite often will say, something that's going to look good in the pictures yeah 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 and then you've got a whole other raft of things that you've got to consider with that which is about you know online safeguarding you know why you're taking pictures of people doing things that they love doing being in there it's really not ethical at the end of the day to kind of use people as your fodder for selling more of what you do Mm. so when you actually get into the practical aspect of instagram <laughs> and the fact that you are literally doing this to take photos and then yeah, yeah. and people you know i mean to, to this isn't just a i am quite interested in the phenomenon of how people want to be participants in their own digital or physical lives right so this isn't judgmental of people doing that it's it's a it's the world we're in where actually taking a picture of yourself at the event is more important than possibly what's actually happening at the event. Mm. That's absolutely down to the people's own sense of play, in fact. So I'm not um, dismissive or judgmental of that in itself. I'm more like it's the bit where we're looking at what passes for a good experience as paid for, you know, like when someone's commissioning you, it's like how I like to yeah. do things which feels like there's some depth and meaning in it rather than will that look good in a picture? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's different layers you, to that, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. You're actually creating those spaces. It just, yeah, it's, there are criteria that should trump <laughs> what, well, no, what it looks like. Nobody says it quite so, um, they're not so, it's not, it's like a hidden code almost. No, yeah. Very few people are going to say, is that going to be an Instagrammable event? Although I did have one client once say they would rather spend half the budget on making it look really super good rather than on the workshop practitioners. And I was like, well, I'd rather spend 80% of the money on actually putting on a really good event rather mm. than it looking brilliant. But that that's always the tension you've got. Because like what I really admire and what you're saying is kind of like um, nurturing a spirit of play or like a, a, a way of reorientating ourselves to the to the world that's not that sort of grab hard serious thing. It's just gentle shifts to okay. No, actually, we could we could ask that question. What happens if we could you know just probe a little bit and prod and and that becomes a part of the rhythm of everyday life and that the place. I mean, that would be amazing. In. I mean, the, the sort of theory of change stuff around, um, is this enough? This, this catalyst 
and not driving it forward mm. is it enough for one or two people some people to see potential in themselves or their place yeah carry on regardless of whether you're there or not you know and i think that sort of what does that actually entail and take because not everybody has confidence to do that um so what does it actually spark and we ever know you know and i think in the world where you want to sort of validate everything you do or case study it you know the temptation yeah. is to make it a three-year program or let it you know and i think it's tempting it really is tempting to make sure that you get the resources to get the longitudinal research to know if what you've done has had the blindest bit of difference mm. made the, you know and i think that's a weakness in what i do at playful because quite often we'll just do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and being able to say well you know 11 years body of work has had this impact can't easily do that yeah because i'm not intentional to do that if that makes sense yeah exactly and I, and i suppose that you know there are elements massive elements of it that are just not measurable <laughs> they're not quantifiable results and outcomes and it's like and as you say it's like if you can make that difference maybe planting seeds in a couple of people that then that spreads and, and it's like the more you try and control them the measurability of it the more you move away from the organic thing that makes it what it is <laughs> and so it's, exactly. it's really difficult it's like, isn't it why do we do it so why do we measure things like um what what is the purpose of the the measuring of the thing um and that's the bit I struggle with, really, because I'm like, if I if I felt there was a benefit for what we're doing to really, mm. really measure this, I mean, they'll get into brilliant conversations and arguments with peers about all this. So it's great. It's not a I'm right thing. Yeah. It's just my instinct is. And that leads to weaknesses in what I do as well, because I don't just sort of have a load of case studies where I go, we did this, and then 25 people's lives were transformed, and they wouldn't expressed you know better well-being factors and less prescription painkillers we don't do that you know mm. but the, there is an absolute opportunity if we wanted to keep doing more and more of the same thing to go down there well, how does this contribute to the nation's well-being yeah. or how does this cure loneliness um we stick within that sort of public health arena as yeah. much as we do what's called tactical urbanism which is like how do you enable people to see a different potential in a place that they hadn't seen before because you came along and did a thing they hadn't experienced before mm-hmm. um and then having had their eyes open they realized not all play had to be a playground as in like fixed equipment oh play can be a piece of chalk and a hula hoop or just my imagination or but actually what i really liked was knowing that other people i'd never met before was doing a similar thing and you know they you know they weren't the same color as me you know mm. and actually two of us were hula hooping together it's like I don't want to have to preserve that in aspect I'm just like yeah. I'm really grateful that I get to be part of seeing those things emerge and I just think if if the best thing that comes out of that is people had a lovely time I'm happy mm. and yeah. that's that's the thing how do I keep sustaining that sense of like because, I mean, it is, into- well, I can't say how it is the most intoxicating thing, really, to see people who didn't expect to be lying on the floor of their busiest high street, which is mostly where they go shopping, 
with a stick of chalk two hours later you know mm. if I was a sort of awful kind of manipulative Machiavellian type person and going <laughs> you know I want the nation to be on their bellies chalking high streets <laughs> yeah that is their land I mean deeply that's what I believe I do believe in spatial justice really mm-hmm. that this is people's land but they just don't know it any longer and they don't claim it and therefore things get taken away because I didn't know it was theirs to, yeah. to play on or do things with anyway. So we I love become that. passive. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that sense of connection to public space. And obviously I think public space is, has been eroded a lot, hasn't it? Over the, the, however long it's been. And that sense of those, those common areas that we meet and, where community happens, like where politics happens, like the, I think our, even our sort of understanding of what politics is has changed in very strange ways. To from like a, you know, you come together in difference, um, as equals, to work things out and figure figure out how how do we do this together, um, and that to me is like that's quite an exciting thing. I, I'm. I mean, I studied politics at university. Like, I love I love politics, but yeah. it's become this thing, this like polarizing thing where it's yeah. no, we don't we don't have conversations, or we throw stones and run away, or like we just antagonize one another, and we don't. There's no, there's not that. Whether it's physical or just metaphorical, yeah. common ground where we meet and we just work out. Yeah, how do how do we own this space together? Like. Yeah, and I, I mean, that is absolutely at the heart of it. Now, if I was to label our playboxes, um, you know, excuse me, this is really about democracy, uh, people would probably run a fair mile, quite frankly. So the bit of like going, how do you, so the uh, right to assemble, the right to mm. to be in a place together, to kind of make eye contact with people that otherwise, you know, you might be on, typically think you're the opposite, poles apart from each other. Yeah. When you're engaged in a, when you're in flow, you know, when you're making a thing or creating a thing, you're not actually thinking, oh, we're really different from each other. Mm. You're recognising how similar you are, in fact. That's so true. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. It's like it doesn't matter how much money you've got in your pocket or what you're wearing or how you got here, people are doing something that pleases them and gives them intrinsic pleasure. Mm. And then from the onlookers' point of view as well, because not everybody will throw themselves into the midst of it. Yeah. there's the sense of theater of the street you know there's this thing this is vi- this is what people call vibrancy there's mm. something enjoyable to observe it's not people beating each other up uh it's actually this lovely harmonic or harmonious space that wasn't there before yeah. you know and you've got a variety of different things happening and that people can just enjoy observing yeah and um You've got an emotional sort of empathetic connection, not just to the place, but to each other. When you see that, you're like, people are all right, aren't they? They're okay. We're not here getting angry yeah. at each other. Yeah. I love yeah. the fact that you, you, you recognize the, that observer position as well. And the fact that, you know, the, when you've got sort of people involved in the center of things and then actually something really lovely about that just happening. And just being near, like the near the presence, near the flow, that that energy sort of just it spreads, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it reminds people. So the, the bit of like um, 
people will say they love the sound of laughter, right? Yeah. It's a very nice thing to hear, a cacophony, you know, like a really yeah. lovely thing. And it's just, it makes you realise how you don't hear it all the time. Mm. But to hear it in a really natural, it's the most weird thing, actually. When I, I do have some sort of very specific images in mind when I'm on Brigitte, for example, in Leeds, which is the busiest main thoroughfare, I think, in for shopping in the north so it's footfall right. is incredible and it's incredibly sent sort of a noisy well visually noisy there are people who are um preaching there will be people with loud hailers there'll be buskers there'll be um peddlers there'll, there's so much going on at that road mm. you know if you have any neurodiversity it's also really sensory like it's yeah. massively overwhelming um, it's busy and bustling and it's got this complete energy to it on a, especially on a Saturday and so when we've spent time on there we are booked, we'll kind of be you know, we're putting on play but we create a space which actually almost feels like it's got this bubble around it of slowness mm. and quietness <laughs> it's really quite weird actually, even with just a couple of arrangements of some street furniture or some furniture bits right. so people can't walk right through the middle of the space that you've created they have to go around it yeah it'll create this flow around the actual main part of this sort of frigate and um because one of the things we did was post-covid was sort of first thing to get booked to invite families back into the city center but we had like the most interesting sort of set of parameters for that which were um people obviously couldn't be outside of their bubbles and you couldn't have more than 30 people in a space at one time and you also couldn't have people who didn't know each other obviously touching each other or coming close to each other mm. and um the one another concern was around people who might have malicious intent with a wide angled camera lens looking like we'd actually put a crowd together and hadn't been oh right <laughs> So we had yeah. to devise play, <clears throat> something playful, which didn't get people bumping into each other, didn't allow that energy, which we're quite good at conjuring, to sort of become riotous. We had so we'd use a lot of hula hoops, as in like draw within the hula hoop, the chalk. <laughs> we quarantined the clock chalk. So every piece of chalk had to then not be used for two days. <laughs> wow. Wipe, wipe the hula hoops. Uh, we had like very <laughs> but what that did was it create this very quiet down low space mm. very very gentle mm. um so it wasn't our typical kind of almost chaotic creative carnage it was very quiet and it's one of the most memorable things i've ever done really because it was like the team obviously i was with the team team were absolutely brilliant but actually this sense of a quiet bubble in a really mm. noisy place and it was like a sanctuary yeah i was going to say yeah. the word sanctuary just came into it's yeah i love i love that idea of those little gentle quiet sanctuaries in the middle of the bustle and the hustle and the and like yeah whether that's in a physical space like that or just finding things online even where you know so much frenetic energy and noise and hustle that goes on um and actually the yeah the beautiful space and stillness that comes just with it doesn't take much and like to be able to cultivate that in the middle of that environment sounds <laughs> remarkable yeah 
but it's kind of almost quite a terrifying space as well actually we've been there a few times now and um, it's terrifying in as much as things are coming at you from all angles mm. always and that's people all the elements it's quite winter tunnel as well um right. yeah but you do get you do get a sort of um drunken or worse kind of um element who will kind of barge straight into the middle of things not always with bad intent but absolutely clumsily or kind of like out of curiosity or just don't care or two off their faces really yeah. to... and so you're always aware there is actual real kind of potential for mishap yeah um and so the kind of navigation of like how everybody can be in a space uh so you're not hostile mm. to um people i always think goes back to the fact that we were all children once you know so like if you can engage the person who's stumbled in completely off their face in a kind of like moment of connection which is what was it like when you were growing up mm. such a disarming question ultimately to ask anybody that question no matter how mm. hostile they are that's a great question yeah yeah because what you're not trying to do is make them feel shame or not welcome but you want to ground it in a place and not for everybody was a great childhood either mm. you know if you're going to look at childhood trauma as one reason why people don't necessarily have the life that we'd all wish for everybody <clears throat> but to be treated with respect is much yeah. is, is the key thing not with hostility yeah. so again that's what play does for me it reminds me that actually we've all got our stories and our you know reasons for being who we are mm. but actually how how do we like that human connection is ultimately what it's all about yeah yeah well, i love that that's really really powerful i think and yeah it comes back to that actually people just need to be seen um and i think that's missing again in so much of society and culture at, at the moment it's just that it's the desperation to be seen not necessarily overtly and consciously but it's just that recognition of okay i i recognize i acknowledge your existence i see you and i see your humanness and that thing of like what was it like for you growing up as a child or whatever like that's almost the ultimate connection to that because that's such a a formative moment and such a, a powerful thing that it yeah, really does that that's cool um so i mean just to uh to finish like this has flown by i can't believe uh, <laughs> we've been speaking as long as we have already um i would love to yeah just ask you what sort of one two three ways that we can uh introduce more play into everyday life like as individuals, as adults, maybe, yeah. Oh, God, do you know what? I'm so rubbish at these types of questions because um, because, because I suppose, really, I, you know, I don't ever be like a fraud here. So I'm sitting in a house which I'm like, am I feeling playful in my own home today? My children are off school because of the strikes. I've told them to get on with work. You know, there's, there's lots of things where I don't want to hold up this kind of like, I am the most playful person in the not yep. you know they'll probably have <laughs> stories as they go to therapy later in their years of like what bullshit merchant i was or something. <laughs> but, so the, the bit it's like a terrible like uh lodestone sometimes of going are you being playful so what can you do i mean there were definitely very simple things i'd say under your sofa 
or in your house or in your pocket you'll probably have things that you can make a story out of number one immediately or like where do all the teaspoons go or where the socks you know there are definitely things which is sort of like mysteries around your house if you just actually lean into the fact that there's play in your house but you might not recognize it as play the stories of play are all around you so like think like a detective i think might be um one so i think that's what kids do as well so i think to when i started playful anywhere when my kids were really little they would take forever to get from one end of the street to the other because everything was so interesting to them Mm -hmm. everything and so you could either just like race along at your own speed or you could kind of go oh what are they finding interesting so that that's really hard when you're busy and stressed and you've got no money in your pocket to kind of slow that down and go what's interesting what's different about this bit of my neighborhood what if i took a different route what if i um me and my husband before the kids actually used to do this a lot more when we're going out for somewhere in the car we'd go left or right you know so we wouldn't you know so we'd just take Uh, the chance yeah yeah and not know where we were going but be prepared to get lost yeah so getting lost is good because you're out of familiar sort of comfort zones there i think so -hmm. allowing yourself to get lost it's a very long-winded way of getting there i think saying that (laughs) nice yeah (laughs) attention you know being curious yeah um and i don't know maybe because i see you've got musical instruments in your house so i do it's like what makes you lose time, lose sense of time. Do you allow yourself to do the things? So this may not be just about playing. It might just be generally like what? How do you deny yourself sometimes the things that you know give you pleasure? Because I'm pretty sure a lot of adults do do that. Mm. So how do you, how do you allow yourself to get lost in time? I like that. Yeah. For you, Andy, in the way, I'm kind of intrigued. Oh, there's, I mean, music, music is a massive one. Yeah, I can lose hours and hours and hours just, yeah, playing music. And I mean, yeah, playing with my nephews as well. Just kids, I, I just love spending time with kids because they allow me to, I don't know, like play with that, with my imagination. I was thinking yesterday, I was thinking of like similar to the the first point you made about the everyday objects in life, making stories. Um, And I was creating a little story in my mind about like frozen peas and imagining when they, when the frozen peas are first frozen and they probably, they're not aware of what's going on. Um, And then they, they come back out of the freezer and they're like, Oh, I didn't realize we must have been like cryogenically frozen. I didn't realize I was still alive. (laughs) And just things like that. Like imagining, yeah, what would that what would that everyday object, you know, when the if if the socks don't get lost, when they're paired back yeah, together. They don't think they're lost maybe. Well, maybe no, exactly. Socks, you know, and if they find like being in a pair, they're like, <laughs> so I was looking for freedom." Well, that's true, yeah. And then if they do find their pair that come find their way back to the pair, what do they say to each other? Like, <laughs> "Oh, oh no." Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love all of that sort of stuff. Like I can entertain myself for hours. But and and what really strikes me about all of those suggestions is like they're all things that are, are right there. They're accessible and they're free. They're yeah. you know and and I think that third one as well, 
the tendency we might have, like even with that, the premise of that question, like where, how can we play more in life? Um, we might jump to that consumer mindset of what do I need to get so that I can do that? Um, and actually as a reminder, no, you're, there are already things that you lose time to that you get into flow with. And it's the act, the actual thing is how do you, allow yourself to do that or where is where are you going to sort of do that i mean people say i don't have time for the x y and z and it's true and our modern lives mean that we are working extremely long hours i mean there's massive expectations put upon us but sometimes it is about prioritizing and pushing back against expectations your own Mm -hmm. and others so going back to that thing about being performative it's like whose business is it quite frankly if i look like i'm a productive human being or not Mm. that is in my mind, that bit gets really into the heart of our capitalist society, which yeah. is productivity and looking like you are adding value to the world. We judge ourselves and others massively on that. Mm. And it's like, well, so what if I'm not? So what if I'm not a productive human being? So what? You know, that's yeah. a massive big question. Um, I respect a lot of people who've managed to carve out a life for themselves, reading more books and drinking more wine and spending more time stroking their animals, right? Mm. And like, that's a choice you can mm. make. And it is a choice. Yeah. You might not have uh, luxurious furnishings around you. You may not actually have a mortgage, you know, but there are still ways in which you can kind of navigate what's super important to me and what mm. are the compromises I'm prepared to make. And that sounds really privileged, but I know people who have not a penny to rub together yeah. who've made those choices um, and still seem to do pretty well with them, their lives and are quite content. Mm. Um, these are big, hard questions to ask yourself in a world which wants us to have mortgages and job security yeah. and all the things that we're taught from a really young age. And yeah, I think, things not to know, question, yeah. <clears throat> that's a big question. And, of course, yeah. I am really mindful that actually if you're stressed, you know, I grew up on a council estate to a single parent who worked all the hours that God sent. You know, so this doesn't come from a place of going, oh, I've had a silver spoon. I've been very lucky that she instilled massive confidence in me to do the things I love doing. Mm. She's a great role model. Mm. Or she is a great model, role model. But I think the thing of going, it's not actually about having loads of money. Yeah. It never has been, but it is counting your blessings. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's it's re- realizing okay, what are the trade-offs, what are the payoffs, what are the what are those choices that I'm making? And those questions that you like it's, it's easy to just sort of skirt over them um and almost dismiss them. But actually to grapple allow those to be real questions that you're allowed to ask. It's quite a big thing because I, I, I don't think, yeah, there's so many questions that that they're not really permitted to ask um, or take seriously in many respects. I think sometimes the whole um, kind of choosing the lens called the playful question, you know, how you can choose to say, I'm really angry, or you can, I'm going to look at this through a playful lens. Hmm. So, if my desire in life is to have as playful a life as possible and for others to have the same if that's what they want, what are the things that you need to question in order for that to be possible, permissible? Yeah. You know, and that's kind of it in a way, which is mm. what will I trade off in order to continue to do more of this? Yeah. So I'll trade off job 
security status, actually. <laughs> I don't think I'd take myself or anybody else seriously. There's no definite things where I'm like, this. these choices have consequences, obviously. But, and sometimes that is painful, I'm not going to lie. You know, there are times when I think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to have enough money coming in this month or next month. That's quite scary, really. Yeah. But it's like you are living by the seat of your pants as well. So mm. it does keep you pretty, like, motivated. Yeah. Alive, aware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it if you really want a very safe. Yeah. And a lot of people I know do want and want have lives that mean that they do want to know that their mortgage is going to be paid, you know. So mm. I am married to, a, you know, there are some things as well that I think you need to say, you know, I'm married, I'm in a relationship. So there's not like this sort of terrifying cliff edge all the time. But mm. do we need to get into this much detail? I think it's important, though, to acknowledge where you are privileged if to, to do things like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's... um that's really helpful. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. A massive thank you to Emma Behrman for taking the time to explore those questions and share so much about what's going on uh, with her, you know, th- the kind of thoughts that she's having, the, the philosophy that she takes into her work with Playful Anywhere. Um, you know, I had loads of takeaways from that chat. Um, some big ones, are the kind of idea that people might come for an event, but that's often an excuse or a, a kind of underlying desire to connect with community. Um, the, the play box is acting as a reason to gather. Uh, so you give a kind of central meeting point, which then becomes a site of organic community building, which doesn't need to be forced. I, I found this a really interesting uh, thing to take into my own, uh, I guess, online community building and, and thoughts around that as well. You know, something to facilitate, but not necessarily drive. Uh, another big takeaway um, is do as little as you need to. Uh, if there's an opportunity to do less, then take it. <laughs> uh, not to be lazy, but to kind of get out of the way, to set the tone, to be a model of beingness rather than that sort of fluttery doingness that can create a, a, a sort of urgent, um, I don't know, energy around the place. Kind of being aware of the energy that we bring into a situation that that becomes contagious. It sort of spreads, and so yeah, being very mindful. Um, and intentional about the energy and the the pace and the rhythm that we bring to situations. Um, you know, it reminded me of some powerful encounters I've had at events with people like Emma when, you know, it feels like even though they're maybe a figurehead or an organiser, they've got time for people. They're not too important to spend time uh, playing and chatting and meandering, uh, getting cups of tea for other people and all that sort of stuff. So I really love the picture that Emma painted um, with that. Um, so yeah, I love that. I, I just want to finish with a thought from something we've been looking at in the Haven recently. Uh, I'm often, you know, thinking about tools for productivity and time management and how strange it is that in a world of abundant solutions to the pressures that we're under, we often end up becoming more busy and more thinly spread. And Emma mentioned this idea of uh, participation in play 
Um, and it's interesting in that, like how as a society we're increasingly moving away from participation in play. Experiences are often carefully crafted so that they're, they're more consumed rather than uh, organically um, cr- created by the user or at least like collaboratively created. You go to spaces either to be uh, essentially part of the experience, part of the furniture um, and act as it's been designed to have you act or else you're kind of out of place. And, and there isn't a, a sense of you, you kind of feel like a, a square peg in a round hole. Um, in the article, the fewer toys children have, the more they play on raisegood.com. They reference a study uh, conducted by Claire Lerner. A psychotherapist, director of parenting resources at zero to three, um, where they specialize in, in early childhood development. And she was conducting research into the potential impact of excessive toys. And they found that children get overwhelmed and overstimulated and cannot concentrate on any one thing long enough to learn from it. So they just shut down. So too many toys mean they're not learning to play imaginatively. And this, um, kind of resonated with Dr. John Riker's uh, research. He's a pediatric psychology uh, psychologist at John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. Um, he talks about two stages that children go through when they receive a new toy. Um, there's exploration followed by play. He says, during exploration mode, a child asks, what does this toy do? And then in play mode, a child asks, what can I do with this toy? So the article says you know, it's, it's during play mode that creativity, imagination, initiative and adaptability thrive. When children are confronted by too many toys, they spend more time exploring and less time playing. Um, and ironically, it seems that by providing fewer toys, we provide more uh, time for play. And so these two questions are fundamentally important, I think, in our relationship with uh, things like self-development as well and the quest for answers and secrets and solutions and, you know, growth and all of these things. Um, it's the difference between really a consumer um, mindset, a consumer approach. What does this tool do? And a creative approach or a creative way of holding the things around us. What can I do with this tool? When there's so many uh, tools and resources and uh, companies trying to get our attention, it's tempting to, you know, not take that difficult step from consumer to creator because it, I mean, it does require us to get involved. It does require us to take some responsibility for um, that next step. Completely understandable as well is that that kind of overwhelm that was mentioned in that research where we might shut down because this, you, you can't concentrate on one thing long enough to learn from it. You can't concentrate on one thing long enough to actually engage with it in a way that's going to uh, be fruitful and it's going to be really kind of rewarding in the sense of uh, what we can um, do with it and so there's a tipping point for us to sort of step over here but when we do we turn that tool into something that works with us in ways that we uh, have more control over rather than something which is uh, you know supposed to deliver us a result so we kind of use it because it's promising a a a delivery of something an outcome Um, and when we do that, we enjoy much richer and deeper results over time and engagement with the things that we uh, have our hands on. And we can stop worrying about, you know, fear of missing out. We can stop looking at the greener grass on adverts and in the hands of other people. And we can start working with what we have in front of us and really uh, play with it and mold it and um, take it where we want it to go in ways that maybe other people don't use it. In, in many ways, that's 
the that's the kind of essence of creativity isn't it like taking something and then working out what we want to do with it and using it in ways that um maybe it's it hasn't been used for before um so yeah i think i, I just want to leave you with that maybe it's something to think about um this week as you look around you what do you already have at your disposal that you haven't yet asked you know what can i do with this um the true partnership starts here reminds me of uh, conversations i used to have occasionally after gigs um when i'd been playing uh with my loop pedal sort of like doing looping vocals and, and beatboxing and that kind of thing um and people would come and ask like oh, yeah, what's the pedal that you're using i remember showing someone once um who was like oh, i've got that pedal but it sounds different which i was like interesting i mean the, like there were actually much better pedals on the market, especially after I've been using the same one for many years. I, I kind of, once I've, I found one, I was like, um, yeah, I, I have no interest in trying different ones because it, it takes a while to get used to it and, um, to kind of figure out what it does. And, and I, I suppose once I've, once I worked out what it did, I was kind of free to see what I could do with it. Um, and that really was what made the difference. So becoming really familiar with the tool, um, that it's, like any musical instrument, really, it's like another limb to some degree. Uh, there's no separation. It's not a, a tool in the end. It's it's something that you speak and act through. Um, but that comes through making the decision essentially to say yes to that one thing and no to the temptation to keep searching for uh, perfect. That's a really tough choice in a world with so many options. That you know that that kind of idea of shutting down because there's so many toys, so many people who make their choice look better than your choice. And the truth is, you know, every option has missing bits. Perfect doesn't exist. Um, but the idea of play just allows you to turn whatever is in your hands into something uniquely interesting. Um, and so just coming back to this idea, the play is in you, not the toy. The creativity is in you, not the instrument. Ah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, if any of this resonates or you're kind of struggling to make a choice right now, I'd love to speak to you. I, I currently offer um, choose your own price, pick the lock coaching sessions, um, which are really great for kind of looking at a specific challenge or an intention that you want to make a breakthrough um, with or on. Um, maybe you're unclear on how you want to approach a, a certain goal or you kind of know you're ready for a change, but overwhelmed by what that might mean. You can't figure out the sort of um, particularities of it or um, how you how you want to approach it um, so yeah I'd love to speak to you if that's the case uh, if that feels good to you I know times are tough at the moment I don't want anyone to feel unable to re receive this kind of um, support I know coaching can be a bit of a uh, a bit of an elite thing really um, in certain uh, areas of it so I'm currently offering a handful of no strings attached uh, choose your own price um, sessions which so essentially we we ha have a about an hour hours call and then afterwards you get an email with with ways you can honor the time we spend together uh, with no pressure no strings attached to say and if you find value in our call um, you can drop me some some money um, no obligations though so uh, yeah just go to andymortcom slash pick the lock to find out more and and book an appointment um and it would be great to yeah hear what's going on for you and, and kind of yeah explore explore that sort of potential um breakthrough whatever that might be all right well um yeah i'll see you again for another episode of the gentle rebel podcast uh soon 
And until then, remember that even when it appears not to be, there is always a way to bring a little bit of gentle mischief into any situation. All right, have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. 